Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joe, at some point, the impeachment and the drama will be over and everyone will shift focus to the 2020 election. So tell us about the professionals. I serve as a political commentator on CNN and talk a lot about Donald Trump and impeachment, but also about the Democratic uh, field. And I'm always – I walk out of each one of these appearances thinking – there's so much more we could explain if there was more time about how this really works. And I'll say I think CNN is really good at covering campaigns, but they have to cover other news and they can't spend 24 hours a day on it. So I had th- this idea that we ought to bring people together who've done multiple campaigns who can look at what's happening and sort of take you behind the scenes, pull the curtain back and say, when Buttigieg went after Warren this week, this is why. Why do people talk about on-the-ground field organizers? Well, what the hell do they do? Who are they? Why are they important? How do you raise money? You know, I mean, we wine caves. Well, there's lots of ways to, to raise money. Now everyone thinks it's in wine caves. And debates are important. How do you prepare for them? So we've gathered a group of people together, and we're going to have a lot of really smart people sitting around a, a table talking about this as the campaign unfolds week after week um, up through the convention and then the general election. For at least until the convention, it's a group of Democrats. The criteria is pretty simple. You have to not support a candidate right now uh, because we don't want talking points. And you have to have worked on multiple campaigns. So in this first segment that will follow, we have Paul Begala, who I worked with at the White House, who's done more campaigns than I can think of. We have Jen Psaki, who uh, worked for John Kerry. Um, We worked together on that campaign, and she worked in both Obama campaigns and held multiple senior positions um, in the government and is just as smart as they come. And we have Ron Klain, because one of the things, in addition to talking about the politics of the nomination, we, we wanted to dig deep on how do you prepare for a debate? And Ron Klain is the master. He is the person that every Democrat goes to because he's one of the few people in Democratic politics that can do both politics and policy at the highest level. You know, I, I put Ron Klain and John Podesta as the only two that I think meet the – they're in the 0.001% of top policy thinkers and implementers and developers of policy but also in politics. And that skill has made Ron the go-to guy on preparing Democrats to debate no matter who is nominated. It doesn't matter who it is. Ron Klain will be sitting in the chair running the the debate prep, and he gives us a fascinating look about how he prepares for it and what he has to do to prepare the nominee. So it's it's I, I hope you'll listen because you'll learn a lot about debate preparation. So this isn't really – a horse race focused podcast about who's going to win. It's really the process and the the behind the scenes of how they're going to get there. It's the opposite of the horse race uh, because you can look at the polls at any given time. And if you know how to read a poll and you get deep enough into it, you can see where it's going. And the top line may not tell you that. This is our attempt to 
again, as I said, pull back the curtain and let people know not just what's happening and where people are, but why they're doing it and what the impact of different things that I think that most people just don't have the time or the access to the experts uh, who do all the different important jobs in the campaign from canvassing, going door to door, from writing the speeches to making the commercials, to raising the money, to preparing for the debates, keeping the candidate sane and happy. Uh, that is a big job. And um, we'll have some people on who that was their job. They were there to you know, make sure the candidate didn't flip out. And that's an important job. We'll be bringing in Democratic experts, not because we want to exclude Republicans, because this is a family fight. While a Republican has a would have an interesting perspective on our family fight. They're not in it and they haven't been in it and they don't they don't bring the perspective that we're trying to tease out here uh, and the expertise really seasoned people together. So it's going to be a fun project. Well, the series is called The Professionals. Let's take a listen. Welcome to The Professionals, where we give you the inside story of what really drives a presidential campaign. Between now and Election Day, we'll break down what makes a campaign successful and why some candidates come up short. Our experts meet two important criteria. They're not actively working on a campaign now, so they can be unbiased. And they've been involved at a senior level for multiple presidential campaigns. The idea is to focus not on what happened, but on how a campaign makes it happen and why. I'm Joe Lockhart, former White House Press Secretary for President Clinton, I've also held positions in the 1980 Carter-Mondale re-election campaign, the 1984 Mondale for President campaign, the 1988 Dukakis for President campaign, and the 2004 Kerry for President campaign. Joining me today are Paul Begala, who's played a role in every Democratic presidential campaign since 1992, and Jen Psaki, who worked both for John Kerry and Barack Obama in their presidential campaigns. Welcome. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. So a lot of people talk about how we pick presidents. What I want to start with you guys is how do you pick candidates? Uh, both of you are very experienced and in, in crowded fields, there's a competition for the best political talent. Paul, how did you pick Bill Clinton in 1992? The, the most important thing is what the candidate believes in. It's the rationale. Because – and if you share that, if you believe in that, if that person moves you and touches your heart – that's what ought to drive you. Yes, it matters. Can Sheerhe win? Can Sheerhe raise money? Can Sheerhe get in the media? Do they have political talent? But none of that can sustain you when times go bad. None of that can sustain the personal sacrifice. You know this. We had a baby in the middle of the Clinton campaign, and I was traveling with Clinton. We named him Jesus because his immaculate guy had nothing to do with it. We we and, and a baby came, and I had to leave again to go back on the road with Governor Clinton. You can't do that just for money or even for the prospect of one day having an office in the West Wing. It sounds silly, and I know this is the professionals. It's got to be your heart. You have to say, this is someone for whom, I mean, I'm going to drop my nets and follow. But what qualities do you look for in a candidate, Paul? Empathy. Can they put their heart in someone else's uh, heart can they can they see through their eyes? Do they get it? Um, basically, that's like the most important question a voter will ask you: Is 
do you get my life? Because these politicians are weird. I mean, they're all egomaniacal, bordering on narcissists. If you decide you want to be president, you don't have self-esteem issues, right? You're like, oh, I should have 6,800 nuclear weapons and 1.3 million men and women under arms. So you want someone who's got, a, who's got empathy. You want someone who's got talent. They're glib. They're quick. They can act and react in real time. They're not a robot. A good staffer doesn't want a candidate who only – does whatever you tell them. It's it's things like that. It's a, they're kind of intangible, but you can see it. You know it when you see it. So, Jen, John Kerry was a kind of an established person in D.C. He'd been in the Senate for a long time. Barack Obama, not so much. What drew you to him and, and led you to decide you were going to be in the campaign one way or the other, I, I would imagine? Hillary was seen as the front runner and the establishment candidate. What was it about Obama? For me, it was completely gut, um, what my gut felt. And he was he moved me emotionally. And not just that. I obviously watched his speech in 2004, like everybody else. I was working for John Kerry in his presidential campaign at the time when he gave that speech. But I then worked at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and I saw also how I was moved by Barack Obama, but I saw how he was moving people around the country emotionally. People were responding to him. They were liberal. They were conservative. They were somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I saw that too. I had a lot of people, not Paul Begala, but that <laughs> cycle in particular pitch me on working for Hillary Clinton, who I liked a great deal. Um, but many, too many people's pitch at the time was she's going to win. Mm -hmm. You should work for her. So she's going to win and you'll learn to love her. But that's never a pitch that I've found appealing. Even today, when you try to calculate I should work for this person because they're going to win. That is never the right reason to work for somebody. It's impossible to predict the electorate. That's why we love politics. Unpredictable things happen. Well, let me follow up on that a little bit. You can both jump in, but Jen first. Does the inevitability message ever work? No. Uh, maybe it worked prior to the internet, television, and all forms of communication, but the American electorate doesn't like to be told who they should support and who they're going to support. They want to make their own decisions. There was a period of time, and you and I both worked on the Kerry campaign. You were a few rungs above me in the uh, pecking order there. Um, but in the beginning, there was a version of inevitability for John Kerry. And then he fell, and there was the summer of Howard Dean, and then he kind of came back. But the inevitability argument, in my experience, never works because it doesn't appeal to people's emotions and doesn't get them to feel like they're a part of a movement. You're right for Democrats. It's the opposite with Republicans. Fair. Democrats. Before Donald Trump. Democrats hate a front runner. If you're leading, it's probably, we think, because you've sold out in some way. Like success for Democrats is a sign of, of, of some sort of flaw, right? We actually – we eat our front runners all the time. Only exception being Al Gore, but he had the, the weight and power of the Clinton White House behind him. And he had one very high-quality opponent in Bill Bradley. Republicans before Trump were the opposite. My entire life, you always knew a year before they were going to nominate the oldest white guy in line, especially if he just lost. You know, Ford beat Reagan, so Reagan got it next time. And Reagan beat Bush, so Bush got it the next time. And Bush beat Dole, so Dole got it the next time. Then they, woo, they got drunk in Vegas and made the guy's son, W, their candidate. But then W beat McCain. McCain got it the next time. McCain beat Romney. Romney got it. And Trump threw it all in a cocked hat. But they were the established hierarchical party. They loved their front runners. 
And the Democrats are just the opposite. But you could argue that John Kerry also was the Republican version of this, right? Yeah, you know, he point. was the person who everybody thought it's his time. He has the record on paper that should take on George W. Bush. That turned out to be wrong. Uh, so I would say when Democrats nominate the person on paper who they think is the right fit, that's usually a losing option. Uh, when we take a risk, historically, that's been the right option. 2020 is a little different because of the person who's in the White House, I think. Yeah, I mean, my experience with the inevitability was working for Walter Mondale in 1984 <laughs> and winning Iowa in a landslide and then someone named Gary Hart ruining the next three months of all of our lives. He eventually won because he, he earned it. John Kerry eventually won because he earned it. We'll talk more about that uh, in, in the coming weeks. How important, Jen, is the staff? The public sees the candidate. They might see some of the senior staff from time to time. And, you know, 92, most people had interpreters to figure out what Carville was saying. I, <laughs> I, still, I still haven't figured it out. I get about every third word, which is, is okay. But how important is getting the right staff together for the candidate to succeed? I think more important than people assume. And as you said, you don't see a lot of these people. Now, ultimately, the candidate is the pivotal piece of this that's going to make or break whether they're going to win the nomination, in my view. But in my experience working for then-candidate Obama, the first two of the first people he hired was David Pluff and David Axelrod, who, of course, had worked with him previously. They're a little Oscar and Felix kind of opposites <laughs> in many ways. But they set the tone for the rest of the staff and the rest of the team and what kind of a campaign it was going to be. And that was incredibly important. You know, it was the no drama Obama. That was very much true in my experience on the campaign. So that was pivotally important. But there are a lot of people that you don't see and never see or know. They are as important or maybe even more important, uh, the people who are running the early primary states. Back in Iowa, Paul Tews was probably one of the most important people that uh, Barack Obama hired because he ran Iowa. He knew what was important there. Without Iowa, Barack Obama would not have won the nomination. So very important, ultimately the candidate, but there are people who make it possible. And without them, certain candidates wouldn't have been the nominees. Paul, one of the things we're going to try to do in the coming weeks is really break down what some of these people in the campaign do. Uh, we're, later in the episode, we'll talk a little bit about debate prep. But from your perspective, we've both been in winning and losing campaigns. Mm -hmm. Me, more losing than the two of you combined, but how important is it? Well, I, it is important, but it depends. Uh, to me, it's still all the candidate. After Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush, who, by the way, had won the last time in a landslide in 1988. So in 92, we take him on and beat him. And, and Carville and I, Stephanopoulos, we all got rich and famous off it. But Carville said an unusually modest and 100 percent accurate thing. He said the truth is, as Bum Phillips, the old Houston Oilers coach, used to say about Don Shula, he can take ours and beat his, or he can take his and beat ours. In other words, he's that good. Okay, Barack Obama, with, I love Paul Tuis, I love Jen. Barack Obama is a once-in-a-generation talent. Oh, that's for sure true. Yeah. And and I think it is always about the candidate. Yeah. I do think the, the operational running of a campaign can maybe get them slightly over mm -hmm. the edge. But they're not going to get to the point of winning the nomination of the presidency unless they are a superior once-in-a-lifetime talent. But a good candidate can get torpedoed by a bad campaign. Uh, I was talking to Howard Dean a couple of weeks ago, and, and he took full responsibility for his dysfunctional campaign. But he used the power of his message 
to ascend to the, the frontrunner status and then couldn't sustain it because he didn't have the infrastructure underneath him. What I think some of the key qualities are are people who can operationalize the candidate's vision and kind of get all the important trains running pieces done behind the scenes. Some of the worst qualities that happen on campaigns are when there's a bottleneck on decision making. That can kill even the best candidates because if you can't make decisions and you can't operationalize and you can't tell the massive company you're running around the country what you're doing or what you want to say – that can clog things up. So, Paul, let me follow up one last time on this. In 1992, uh, the campaign was based in Little Rock. But right. you traveled around the country with Bill Clinton. How much of it was Paul and Bill <laughs> improvising, figuring out what we were going to do and defying Little Rock's orders? And how much of it was Little Rock telling you what to do and you trying to move it a degree or two left or right, knowing that you were there with him, you knew his mood, you knew everything that had gone on during the day. It, it depended on the day. It really did. You know, I was really blessed because I got to sit next to Bill Clinton and go to 48 states. Carvel and Stephanopoulos ran that war room, which, by the way, was created by Hillary Clinton. Clinton won the nomination. Bill Clinton did, despite a completely dysfunctional campaign because of his talent. But by the time we were looking at the convention, Hillary saw that we were not a well-run campaign. There was that bottleneck that Jen was talking about. And so Hillary set up the war room. George and Carvel ran it. I got to, to go on the plane. There's always tension. Now, James is my very best friend in the world. George is one of my closest friends, and that helped. So we talked endlessly, endlessly. But there's that tension. And sometimes you got to make a call on the fly, and particularly it depends on the candidate. George W. Bush, I have a lot of friends who worked for him. He is a very disciplined, very rigorous guy who really sticks to plan. And he executes very well. But you got to have a plan. It's got to be in front of him. If he doesn't have the speech locked down a week before, he's not going to give it. Okay, Clinton is an improvisational jazz musician. Like you can hand him a score all you want, but he's going to freelance off of it. You have to tailor the campaign to the talents and needs of the candidate, which is what I want to ask Ron Klain about with the debate prep, because I don't think there's one formula for winning a campaign anymore than there's one formula for preparing someone for a debate. One of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is really take you behind the scenes to important parts of the campaign. We'll talk to people who organize the field staff and sort of turn voters out. We'll talk to the people who raise money. And we'll talk to Ron Klain, who is without a doubt the foremost expert on how to prepare a candidate for a debate. Now, you know Ron from many of the positions he's held. He was chief of staff for Vice President Gore. He was chief of staff for Vice President Biden. Uh, I think we're out of vice presidents at this point in time. You were were chief counsel for Senator Biden when he ran the Judiciary Committee. Uh, But most important, because I like to call him czar, you were the Ebola czar. And actually, I I should not joke about that. You did an incredible job. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Saved thousands of lives, if not more. Let's start with a pretty open-ended question. Someone calls you and says, you're the expert. I want to be prepared for the debate. Where do you start? Well, debate prep and debate strategy is an outgrowth of campaign strategy. It makes no sense to send a candidate onto a debate stage to do something that doesn't help him or her win the campaign as a whole. So you start with trying to figure out what's the campaign trying to get done? What are the key issues in the campaign or what are the key contrasts you're trying to drive or what are the key qualities about your candidate or the opposing candidate that you're trying to emphasize? So I think any good debate strategy begins with a analysis of the campaign strategy and how you can use a debate to try to drive those objectives. 
what kind of team do you put together? It's it's obviously not just you. You've got a team that to sketch out for us who does what. Well, so, you know, I think obviously it depends on the size of the campaign and the complexity of a campaign. But if you're talking about a general election presidential campaign, usually what you're really doing is integrating all the elements of the campaign into debate prep. You need the strategists on the campaign or the pollsters, the people who are setting that overall direction. You need the the speech writers, the people who write material that the candidate delivers regularly and knows the candidate's voice and approach. You need the policy folks to understand what the lines of demarcation are in the race and what policy issues the candidate's trying to push. And then you need the research team to understand what your candidate's vulnerabilities are and what the other candidate's vulnerabilities are and what kinds of attacks you should expect in the debate and what kind of attacks you're trying to deliver in the debate. Talk a little bit about you've prepared several candidates uh, at the presidential level. How do their personalities figure into how you approach it? Well, the first one I worked on uh, with uh, Paul was uh, President Clinton's campaign in 1992, his original campaign. And there's just no one in American politics with the kind of encyclopedic knowledge of policy that Bill Clinton has. Uh, my job on that team was to kind of be the policy expert. It was like being the Maytag repairman in the old TV commercials where you sat around and did nothing all day long because the guy knew every single policy thing there could be to know. I think the challenge with Bill Clinton always was trying to get him to practice, get him disciplined, get the answers down to the right time length that they had to be, and kind of get him focused on inside that giant encyclopedia of stuff, what were the things that really were going to move the needle in the in the race. And so – that was kind of, I think, the challenge with him. With President Obama kind of at the opposite end of it, he really fundamentally thought that these debates were kind of BS and that that they weren't to be taken that seriously, that, that look, it was just a bunch of garbage and everyone knew where he stood and everyone knew where Romney stood and so what was the point of all this and so on and so forth. And I think obviously this was a, a challenge for well, him. That, that strategy worked in the first debate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he adjusted obviously accordingly after that. So, you know, I think every candidate comes to this. I mean, if you're talking about particularly presidential campaigns in the general election, you're talking about someone who has navigated their way through the primary process. They're at the apex of the American political system. They have great talents. They have great intellect. They have great abilities. And it's just a question of figuring out how to harness all the pieces of that in a way that are going to be most effective for the particular challenge and situation they face. So, Ron, every presidential cycle, there are days where the presidential campaign is behind closed doors somewhere at a disclosed location, usually a nice one, doing quote-unquote debate prep. That's a great mystery to most people. What happens behind the scenes? How do you structure the days? Who's in the room? And what does it look like? So it varies from candidate to candidate. Each candidate has a a method and a rhythm that works best for them. But I'd say the things that are universal is some of the preparation involves reviewing written materials. What are the answers that have been drafted for the candidate to give and having him or her interact with those answers and get comfortable with them? Another part of it is just kind of practicing delivering those answers and understanding, hey, we wrote this answer. The time limit's 90 seconds. Does it fit? Does it not fit? Does it sound good? How does the candidate deliver it? So on and so forth. And then some part of it's practicing with stand-ins for the opposing candidates to try out the back and forth of the debate and to see how it goes, to see when you give your answer and the other side gives their answer, how do they sound and where do you go from there and what are the variations on it. Usually it's a mix of those things and different ratios to get a candidate ready. How much is tone versus content? Okay, so you had me be the stand-in of, yep. as George W. Bush debating Al Gore. And Gore is just a brilliant man, absolute genius, and, and George W. Bush, with respect, not so much. 
He's modestly gifted intellectually, but very, very high emotional IQ. Bush, a very, very likable guy. And in those preps, I could feel the raw contempt that Al Gore had for then Governor Bush, just dripping with just just disdain. And you felt it in the preps. And I think the country saw it, even though Gore had all his facts right. I'm sure Bush missed a lot of facts. I do think that the the attitude. How do you how do you adjust somebody's attitude? If by the time they get to the apex, they really hate the other candidate's guts. And yeah. how do you dial that back if you need to? Well, I mean, I think uh, you know that's one reason why we did the practices that you're talking about uh, in 2000 to see those things, and then you make your best efforts to adjust those things. Sometimes those adjustments are are effective. Sometimes adjustments are ineffective. And sometimes it's a set of choices. I mean, you go back to the Obama thing for a second in 2012. I don't think it was that President Obama had contempt for Mitt Romney. But if you think about it, the president's attitude was the fundamental issue in that campaign was uh, the president's health care plan, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, a plan that essentially had been written by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. And the fundamental point of Romney's campaign was that this plan was horrible and awful, even though he was the person who wrote it. It was just very hard for Obama to take seriously that he was going to stand on the stage for an hour and a half and debate someone who had written a plan who was going to spend the entire hour and a half tearing that plan apart. And, you know, that led to this kind of, in some ways, a very disdainful attitude. And the challenge you have is you have to pick which of these things you're going to try to adjust for. And I think that our first decision in 2012, you know, if you think about, again, this strategic situation of the race, in 2012, Obama was in this weird place where his personal approval was higher than his job approval. Voters liked Barack Obama. They weren't sure about the job he was doing as president. And that forced us to make sure that President Obama was likable in the debate. And it was it's hard to be likable in a debate. And it kind of gave mm-hmm. us a very cautious strategy for the first debate, a very uh, kind of pulled back strategy where he didn't really go on the attack. And it produced a very bad result. So I think you're constantly trying to balance these questions of what's the right tone? What's the strategic situation? How do, how do you handle it? Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes the candidate executes it well. Sometimes the candidate doesn't execute it so well. And Ron, I remember back in 2012 watching that debate and all of us watching thought he's not doing very well. But when he was done with it, he didn't seem to be fully aware that it wasn't his best (laughs) debate performance. How do you readjust? And I can say this because I went and did Fox and Friends the next morning, which was a, a, a challenging experience, I'll say. But how do you adjust between debates? Because there's, of course, not just one. There's many. When somebody right. has a terrible performance or if they have a great one, but you can't repeat it exactly, what do you do? Well, first of all, you're right that the president did not walk off the stage thinking it had gone quite that poorly. And one of one of the hardest things I've ever done is actually having to kind of tell him afterwards, you know, this did not go so well. But then, as you say, the real challenge is what do you do next? We had 10 days between the first debate and the second debate. In the middle of that, Vice President Biden debated Paul Ryan. We had to get Vice President Biden ready for that debate and do well in that debate. But we had to kind of figure out the problem. And one thing that's really interesting about that is – and another factor about these debates are debates are also a function of the time and the the historical context in which they take place. The Obama thing is a great example of this. One thing we noticed about that first debate is President Obama spoke four minutes longer than Mitt Romney and said 800 fewer words. What that meant was he was talking very slowly. And we went back and looked at 2008, and he also would talk slowly. But 2008, we were in the middle of a crisis in that first debate. Lehman Brothers had collapsed three days before the first debate. And the president's very measured, halting, thoughtful prose seemed reassuring to the country at a time of crisis. 
Four years later, the country wanted action. They wanted motion. They wanted direction. And that same kind of style struck people as lethargic, unenergetic, detached, so on and so forth. So part of what we did in those 10 days was really identify that as an issue and encourage the president to speak more quickly, to be more energetic, to kind of get off quickly with quick answers and really show that he really had the energy and drive to do four more years, and that's what he wanted to do. And so we kind of identified that as a problem, work with him on the solutions to the problem, and I, he obviously had a much stronger second debate that time. Can I ask a heretical question? Debates are my favorite thing in a campaign, and you are the best debate preparer I've ever seen. I've done this for 35 years. Do they really matter? I hate to say it because Hillary yeah. Clinton, who you prepared for the debates, she destroyed Donald Trump. You know, and it was a single-digit race. Everybody in the polling afterwards said by 20, 30 points that Hillary destroyed. Trump's substance was terrible. His his demeanor was awful. He was stalking around like some kind of creep. She destroyed him, and it didn't matter. Well, it didn't. It didn't, right? I mean, I think it didn't matter is a complicated thing to say. According to all the polls, if we had held the election the day after the third debate, she would have won in a landslide. I mean, she went up um, before the first debate. The race was essentially tied in the polls. At the end of the third debate, she was up 10 points. The problem is we don't vote the day after the last debate. And just because of the quirks of the calendar, the gap between the third debate in 2016 and election day was the longest it's been in our history. Hmm. Uh, the debates ended early in 2016. She had more than two and a half weeks two and a half weeks in which Jim Comey did his thing, in which Trump started to perform a little better. And you just watch that number just chip down and down and down and down every day. So do it is not the case that the candidate that wins the debates always wins the election. That's different than whether or not you say, well, do they make a difference? No, I think they definitely make a difference. I think you can go back to the 1992 race. It's quite possible Bill Clinton would have won that race without the debates. Possible. But I also think there's little question that his performance in those debates persuaded the country that he was ready to be president mm -hmm. and was a comfort factor in the election. Might have won otherwise, but definitely helped. Same thing in 2008, I thought, with, right. with, with Barack Obama. Uh, we might well have won the election. The economy was crashing, so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. But I thought seeing him on a stage with John McCain, showing he could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, showing he was ready to deal with the problems, I think made a big difference. So I think they are, they, they, uh, they are a big impact on the campaign, not always decisive, uh, John Kerry beat George Bush three for three in 2004, and George Bush got reelected. But I also think, frankly, without those three performances, Bush would have won the race by like five or six points. It came to, to be a very close race. So I think they make a difference. They may not make the ultimate difference. They certainly can make a difference if you look at the flip side of it in losing an election. We, we have historical record. You know, Gerald Ford in 1976, maybe he would not have beaten Jimmy Carter, but saying that Poland was not yeah. dominated by the Soviet Union was a little bit of a problem. Well, I also think I'll give you another example. I mean, the one that Paul and I were on. I think that uh, Vice President Gore, for whatever reason, we didn't get it right in the 2000 debates. I think that part of why George Bush narrowly lost the popular vote and won the Electoral College was in part because I think he kind of out-debated Gore, um, not with brain power or with wit, but with a certain kind of warmth and an effective performance. That, um, that made a big difference for him. Can, can I tell you, what, this is one thing that Governor Bush did that was absolutely brilliant. As a stand-in for Bush, I did not anticipate. On any kind of complicated foreign policy matter, he just said Clinton had it right. Yeah. Which you usually don't do if you're in the opposition party and you're trying to switch parties. So you ask him about West Africa and he'd be like, yeah, you know, I think it's going okay there. I think Clinton's okay. And then what do you say if you're Al Gore? Yeah. 
It well, was brilliant, though, because nobody was going to vote based on right. West African policy. Well, you know, we faced the same thing again in 2012 in the third presidential debate where it dawned on us in the days before the debate that Mitt Romney might well try to hug Obama on a lot mm-hmm. of foreign policy issues. And we developed a debate strategy where when, when Romney said basically Obama was right – Obama turned to him and just like ripped into Romney anyway. And we just decided that even when when Romney was kind of like, oh, basically, I agree. We're like, well, but you previously said this and you previously said that and so on and so forth. So I think you have to anticipate kind of those situations and be ready for it. I just think that for Bush and particularly in in 2000, uh, you know, he was just trying to prove that he was capable. He was Mm -hmm. in some ways the challenger candidate trying to prove that he was capable. Hugging Clinton was a good strategy for him. And um, and I just think he's 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 not maybe not the most genius politician in the world. He he is a very effective political communicator, and he used mm-hmm. those debates to communicate very effectively. One of the things, Ron, that I've noticed in watching you and others work is one of the jobs of the uh, debate preparation team is to sort of break the candidate down a little bit and expose their flaws in private before they're exposed in public. I'm I'm interested in in your theory on that. But I'm mostly asking this question so I can prompt Begala to tell the story about preparing Clinton in 96 <laughs> yeah. when he was not paying attention. You hadn't, you were there. Yeah. Look, I think that you know some candidates come to this ready to go and some candidates come to it ready not to go. Hillary Clinton actually is a good example of the opposite. I worked with her in all nine of the primary debates and the three general election debates. And that was a person who showed up to debate prep having already read the briefing book, having already memorized the answers with like her questions about like the footnotes on page 88 and so on and so forth. And, you know, really worked hard at it and I think got great results as a result. But not every candidate is like that. Paul Begala. In 1996, Bill Clinton uh, suffered from what every incumbent president suffers from, which is they really enjoy having their asses kissed. And here he'd been president for four years and every day, oh, Mr. President, are you losing weight? And I'm sure like with Obama, oh, Mr. President, that jump shot's looking real good. You know, just whatever you can do to suck up to him. And they've had that for four years. And not just from schmuck staffers, from four-star generals, from heads of state. And so we were preparing Clinton, Joe and I and, and, and Ron and some others. We were out in Chautauqua, New York, this beautiful place. And we had George Mitchell, the Senate Democratic leader. Who, who was killing him. Just killed Destroyed him. him. Destroyed him. And at one point, Clinton just broke down, started screaming at Mitchell, George, you're using a book and I'm not because we had Dole's positions laid out for Mitchell and he just destroyed him. And Clinton was furious and raging. And Lockhart, the press guy, comes up with the idea of writing the news story for the morning after the debate saying, OK, Mr. President, this is what it's going to look like if you do that. And that that device was just genius. It broke the, through. The most important part of that story is that Paul and I wrote it together. Paul presented it to President Clinton himself <laughs> as I had joined the campaign two months earlier. Yeah. I said, Paul, I'm all in here. But you're all by yourself going up there to yeah. give it to him. And it was a devastating story and it is exactly what the press would have written. He actually did better, I think, than most incumbent presidents because he listened to Ronnie, listened to Joe, and he yeah. – he, 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 well, in, took Dole seriously. You know, in fact, seven incumbent presidents have debated. Uh, six of the seven have lost their first debate. Bill Clinton, ninety-six, is the only one who won his first debate. In part, maybe because Bob Dole was not the greatest uh, opponent, but in part because uh, you guys more than me got him ready for that debate, ultimately, and and he performed. But incumbent presidents, six out of seven times, which is to say almost all the time, lose their first debate. In, in part because of what Paul is saying about how they're kind of used to to having it their way and not used 
to standing at a podium 10 feet away with some person yell at them all night long about what a terrible job they're doing. That's not what president's common experience. And in part because, look, you know, their opponent has gotten there by uh, winning the primaries. They probably debated 20 times that year. The president is four years out of practice. And that opponent then spends all fall getting ready for that debate. The president's running the country. Like how much time for debate prep does a sitting president have? He's He or she was busy being president. And so I think it's a, you know, ironically, it is a big disadvantage to be an incumbent president going into one of these debates. Ron, I want to cover two more things before we let you go. First is, what's the balance in watching the debates of the great lines that are prescripted and practiced and are just off the cuff and just political genius on stage? Well, so I think this has changed over time. I think our expectations and views about this have changed. I think Twitter changes this a lot. I think social media changes this a lot. I think 10, 15 years ago, I would say these pre-scripted lines are the debate winners. They're the things we remember. They're the clips we see 20 years later, so on and so forth. There's, you know, the where's the beef where's uh, from the beef Walter Mondale. There's you're no Jack Kennedy Ken, right, all from these Boyd things. Benson, I, yeah. I will not use my opponent's youth and yes, experience yes, against him. Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Reagan Ronald yeah. saved himself in the, yeah. in the yeah. second yeah. debate, yeah. 1984. But, I, but, I, but look, I think, our, I think our culture, I think our political culture has changed. I think our media culture has changed. And I think now more often than not, when you hear candidates deliver these canned lines in the debates, you get a big groan in the audience. Pass you the big, torch. You pass the torch. You get a big kind of groan on Twitter. And and so I think that, you know, the debates, I think the candidates are forced to be more spontaneous, more natural, more organic, less uh, canned than they used to be, I think, are just our views and expectations on this have, have, have changed over time. And my general advice to uh, candidates now is, look, think about some things you want to say. Think about some lines. Think about some good cutting lines. But in general, you have to go in there and give an authentic performance because that's kind of what the voters are looking for in this day and age. And I think uh, the big wind-up punch, like Eric Swalwell's pass the torch thing, almost always go womp, womp today. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just. I that's think, what I said at my t- to my TV screen at home. Yeah, I just think it's just. I think our views about this have changed over time. Yeah, a bad line repeated twice loudly doesn't yeah. make it a good line. Yeah, I yeah, wanted yeah. to ask you too. I mean, this year, taking it to the present day. A number of candidates have announced kind of big policy proposals, the the days in advance of debates, either to get it out of the way or have something to talk about. What's your thought on that? Or do you recommend that or think that's not the wise decision? And, and Ron, let me add one thing so you can answer together. There's there's also candidates who have previewed their strategy or yeah. I'm uh, so Previewed so, their attacks. I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm, I'm candidate X. I'm going to uh, attack candidate Y. How yeah. can address both of those? Look, I think – the 2020 debates are a challenge for everyone because there are an unprecedentedly large number of candidates participating and that creates challenges, particularly if you're not one of the top two or three candidates and you're trying to make your mark. You're trying to stand out and try to have your moment in the sun. And I think that the candidates have all been thrashing around a bit with what their approach to that will be. And I think all that's challenging. And people have tried a bunch of different strategies, the whole I'm going to rule out this policy thing, the whole I'm going to announce my attack thing. And look, I think that by and large, the best thing you can do in that situation is go on stage, be yourself, try to introduce yourself to voters. I mean, I think that's the one thing that some of these candidates are missing. They're out there every day campaigning. I get that. But they're out there every day campaigning, being seen by hundreds or thousands of people on debate night. uh, Now we have 14, 15 million people watching. And so I think if we just go up there be yourself, say why you're running, say what your campaign's about, say what you want to do, and and get that in front of millions and millions of people. That's like a really good opportunity to have. And I think uh, some of the 
gamesmanship that's going on around this is probably not going to be that effective. So let me finish with a question to to everyone here. Debates are are normally won on the debate stage, but sometimes afterwards. How important is the getting out and spinning the debate and getting the public's mind focused on the issues that yeah. you think were important? And Ron, you start, and then I want to hear from Paul. Yeah, so look, this is another thing that's really changed dramatically. And specifically, I can point to the moment when it changed, which is 9 p.m. Eastern time in Denver, Colorado <laughs> at the first uh, debate in 2012. And Jen and I lived this together. The between 1976, when we started the modern debates, and that night in Denver, what would happen is the debate would go on while you're, the team is backstage. You're trying to figure out what were our winning lines, what happened, what went well, what went poorly. You're writing up talking points. You're emailing your friends in the press. I'm now emailing Paul Begala at CNN. I'm like, hey, how about this? So on, so blah, blah, blah. And you're spending the night trying to spin the candidate's performance and try to uh, persuade people about your take on the thing. And then afterwards, everyone's running out, talking on TV, so on and so forth. Well, then Twitter gets invented. And, you know, 30 minutes into that debate in Denver, the folks on Twitter had voted that Obama got crushed. And that was just it. And we were sitting backstage. The last hour of that debate was the least hard I've ever worked in politics because there was nothing you could really do. You couldn't persuade people that they hadn't seen what they had just seen, that they hadn't read what they had just read on Twitter, that they hadn't read Obama supporters screaming on Twitter that like Obama was deliberately trying to lose the election or something like that. And so I do think that the power on this post-debate spin thing has shifted from kind of the insiders and the campaigns and the pundits to this big social media voice that weighs in on these things and has a huge impact. So I think this has just really changed dramatically since 2012. Yeah, I mean, I would agree completely. And also Twitter, I mean, I'll just remind everybody, is very liberal. It's pretty coastal. So what's challenging about it is that it becomes kind of a herd mentality that isn't necessarily reflective, typically isn't reflective of where most of the electorate is, which is challenging. Twitter also means that there can be moments pulled from debates that happen a couple of days later and become a problem. You know, I remember with the last debate, there was kind of a controversy around something Vice President Biden said that wasn't a controversy that night, but became a controversy on Twitter a couple of days later. So that can also happen. I think the spin room has become, it's it's sort of an afterthought at this point. I mean, people are there and they're milling about, but it's no longer a driver of what's happening. I do think what we've seen as of late with so many candidates who are so desperate to kind of be in front of people and have their moment, that a lot of them are going to the spin room now. And I think some of them have made mistakes when they've done that. I mean, you look at Cory Booker, who has had pretty good, strong debate performances, I, I would say. He went, I think it was the last debate, to the spin room. And after he had been very positive and kind of kumbaya and had a good debate performance, he sort of alluded, he kind of attacked Vice President Biden in a way that didn't sit well with a lot of people. Did he need to do that? He'd just done a three-hour debate. I think some of them have, have sort of kind of messed up their performance a little bit, too, when they go to the spin room. Jen said something that really, I think, should be underlined here, which is it's not just, as I said, that the focus of spin has shifted from the old insider system to the social media system. I think it actually has a big impact on how the debates themselves are conducted in this way. Twitter is very confrontational. It's very much like uh, scoring a prize fight. People want to see their candidates punch each other. Did my candidate really hit the other candidate hard, so on and so forth? That's what gains stature on Twitter. And as a result, 
I think it makes the debates much more like a punching match than they used to be. Think about the general election debates in particular. The core debate strategy used to be, look, we're trying to go in there and persuade undecided voters. We're going for the middle. We're kind of going for trying to get the voters who haven't yet made up their mind in October of an election year, so on and so forth. Now, debates are much more about rallying your base on Twitter. Now, part of that reflects the general trend in our politics, but I think there's no question that Twitter is impacting how the candidates debate. And I think you can look at what Obama did in the last two debates in 2012, what Clinton, Trump did in 2016, and say their debate strategies were impacted by how their performances were going to be evaluated on Twitter. Right. And in different ways for the two different parties. Yeah. You know, Jen made a really good point. Twitter is younger, more educated, more liberal, more white, uh, except for the white part. That's the Democratic Party. OK. And the white liberals are still Democrats. But Democrats are much more affected by the Twitter commentary than Republicans are, even though the president is a Twitter president. He's got 55 million followers, whatever. His people, they're not sitting on Twitter wondering what Begala tweets. They're going to wake up the next morning and Fox and Friends is going to tell them what to think. Seriously, they don't give a shit what Twitter says. They just care what the dear leader tells them to think through the vehicle of Fox News. There's nothing like that with the Democrats. And to the extent Twitter drives it, and I think it's a great extent, it's a really negative force because uh, the, the people driving Twitter are really not the people who are going to pick the Democratic nominee. The t Twitter is, as I said, it's 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 over-educated, over-opinionated, over-caffeinated, pain-in-the-ass white liberals. And the people who are going to pick the Democratic nominee are African-American moderates. They always have been. South Carolina has the best track record of picking the, the nominee with the only except they started their primary. They've always picked the nominee, the sole exception of 2004, where John Edwards, who was born there, narrowly won. But other than that, South Carolina, which is majority African-American primary and very moderate, has a much stronger track record than almost anywhere else. But that's not Twitter. And I, th I do think that's got to distort the way these Democrats are conducting themselves in these early debates. Yeah, I think to add one other audience to the Twitter audience, the mainstream media, who are influenced by what they read on Twitter and what they're tweeting yeah. and there. And again, there's a lot of academic research that shows that the public sometimes looks to the media to tell them who won, that they don't have the instincts themselves because they're not political animals. And you very often see that the snap poll on the night of a debate will say, Obama won the debate by 38 to 29. And two days later, the poll will say, Obama won the debate by 70 to 26, because conventionalism yeah. starts mm -hmm. to form. All of that was incredibly interesting. Ron Klain, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ron. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.